Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. At some point during the pandemic, I developed this weird obsession. I wanted to measure all the ways my body had changed since the beginning of COVID. So let me explain. This started at about the 18-month mark of the pandemic, right about the time that the world kind of settled into this new normal, and it felt like the before times were another existence. So I wanted to see how much of that change was reflected in me, like in my physical presence on Earth. There were all these obvious ways. My hair changed. It got so long through the first year of lockdown that at some point I was like, I hate all this hair, and then cut most of it off. I lost weight, and then I gained weight, and then I lost a little more weight, and then I gained even more weight, which I think a lot of people can relate to. But there were also these weird and hyper-specific ways that my body started to change. I noticed that the skin on my feet was different. Like, I no longer had calluses on the back of my heels because I wasn't wearing uncomfortable shoes anymore. And instead, I had calluses on my ankles because I sat crisscross all day at home, and so my bare feet would rub against the chair. And I know a lot of people will hear this and think it is too much information, but let's normalize women's bodies. I stopped shaving my underarms. At the beginning, I just kept forgetting because everything was so crazy and scary. And then soon, it felt like shaving was pointless. I wasn't going anywhere. But then, as the months wore on, something about it just felt right and comforting. But what I really got to thinking about was my body on a molecular level, like my cells. So all the parts of your body are always regenerating. Your skin, your bones, your organs. They're always growing new cells and getting rid of old ones. So I started to wonder, like, how much of my body had even existed before the pandemic? How much of me was the me from before? And how much of me had become a completely new person, forged out of this strange place that the world had become? And then I realized... A lot of other people are asking themselves the same question. Hi, Post Reports. This is John from Rhode Island. This is Sophia calling in from Denver, Colorado. And I'm responding to your request um, <clears throat> for people who went through um, some kind of body change during the pandemic. Before the pandemic, I used to love to go out to bars, drink lots of alcohol and party and smoke cigarettes. And the way my body has changed since the start of pandemic is that I finally decided to grow my hair out. You know, locally, like uh, people who worked in stores who I'd been on a first name basis with just didn't recognize me anymore. So I quit smoking cigarettes. And in the month of April 2020, I ran almost 120 miles. And I love it. I love the way it looks and I don't think I'm gonna go back. And if it wasn't for COVID, I don't know if I would have gone through with it. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, September 30th. 
Today, we've got a show about bodies. People whose bodies have changed during the pandemic, intentionally and unintentionally. Changes that have surprised them, delighted them, or worried them. And we'll get some advice on how we can all think about our own bodies and their never-ending changes. Many months ago, when we put a call out on the podcast asking for listeners' stories about their changing bodies, one of the first people we heard from was Christine. She described in her email this evolution that she's been through, and she even attached before and after photos. Our producer, Ariel Plotnik, reached out to talk about what's been going on. I can tell you what happened. I just could not stop eating. I just, it was like I had one cupcake and I had to have three. And Everything was like that. This is Christine Capece. She lives in the suburbs outside of Boston. And for a long time, she was a bodybuilder. She taught group fitness classes. She worked as a personal trainer. And she did CrossFit. Before the pandemic, what did an average day look like for you? Oh, geez. Okay. My average day. I would get up anywhere between 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning. Most days, I would teach at one gym at 5.30. I'd go to another gym for 7.30. I'd have a client at 9. I would do my own workout from 11 to 12.30. And in between all this, I um, would have all my food prepped. It would all be weighed and measured. I'd count my macros. I'd count my calories. I'd count how much I was exercising. It, it, it was like a full-time job. Christine started noticing her body when she was in the third grade. She was teased about her weight. One thing that she remembers was when a classmate asked her to stand in a particular spot so her body would block out the sun. I was heavy. I had a big round head with freckles and black hair, and I didn't look like anybody else around me because my grandparents raised me, so I wasn't wearing the newest styles. And even if I wanted to, I couldn't fit into them anyway because I, I was a bigger kid. To try and lose weight, she'd walk five miles a day. She started jogging, too. And when she was 16... This new thing came out called Step Reebok. Step Reebok was an aerobic exercise class, and she did it every night before bed. Oh, my God. When I saw that, I started to just be obsessed with working out, and I would do Step Reebok every night before bed. My grandparents thought I was crazy. This was when exercise started to become her whole life. She went from Step Reebok to CrossFit to bodybuilding... And she even won the Granite State Open, a women's bodybuilding competition. But the thing is, is in that body, is as good as I looked, I never felt good. I always felt tired. I always felt weak. And it was like, I look great, so therefore I must be great and I must feel awesome. And everything is just sunshine and rainbows. Then the pandemic started. And all of a sudden, all of Christine's routines disappeared. I don't have to be anywhere. I can just stay home and just do what I want. I can just do anything. I don't have to go to the gym. I don't have to eat, you know, this particular food or anything like that. At first, it kind of freaked her out. I just could not stop eating and I didn't want to work out. I just didn't have the motivation. And in this time that I was feeling just out of control with food and no motivation to work out, I um, sought out help from um, a dietitian. 
I figured she'd fix all my problems. I'll follow this diet plan. I'll get back to the way I'm supposed to be, you know, thin and healthy and, you know, toned up. Christine went to the appointment, and the first thing she noticed was the dietitian was younger than she was. And I was like, oh, this girl knows nothing. Like, I have been on Weight Watchers since 88. I've been on Jenny Craig. I've done Atkins, Keto, Dirty Keto. I've done, I know all of it. This girl is going to know nothing. I'm probably going to end up teaching her stuff. Then something surprising happened. The dietitian started asking Christine questions that she realized she didn't know the answers to. She challenged all my beliefs. Why do you have to work out for an hour a day? Why do you have to be a size six? Like, uh, because that's where my pants fit. I, I have to be a size six. Well, why can't you get bigger pants? The way my mind was blown, I mean, from 12 to, I mean, all those years, like 30-something years, gaining weight and losing weight and feeling healthy and not feeling healthy. It's like, I just, I cannot picture doing this any longer. So I'm just going to give it a shot. Christine completely changed her life. She's not bodybuilding anymore, and she won't go back to gyms that promote dieting or weight loss. To learn it all at a, at a late age, I feel like I've literally wasted my whole life just trying to be the, the perfect body, the perfect mom, the perfect, you know, personal trainer, you know, all these things. I felt like I had to live up to somebody else's expectations, and I don't know who the person is. I don't know who the group is. I don't know what it is. I just felt like it's not okay to just be in your skin. The way she thinks about her body and food and exercise, that has totally changed. So um, <laughs> nobody's going to want to hear this, but I feel stronger. I feel better. I feel healthier. I feel more alive. I feel emotionally regulated. I have a bum. I have boobs. <laughs> and yeah, it's just... It's honestly, it's just, it blows my mind every day. I asked her what advice she would give to her younger self. Oh my gosh, there's so much. First of all, there's so many things, and I don't think I'm alone in feeling this. There's so many things in life that we put on hold because we want to do something else first. Like, I just got to lose 10 pounds, and then I can go to this place or wear this dress. Or, you know, I got to lose 20 pounds before I get, you know, go to the special event. And those are things like if if I had just had the clarity of mind that I do now, I probably would I would probably be a doctor, honestly, because I've always wanted to be a doctor, but I never thought that I would fit in. And and I remember in my thirties, like, I just want to be a doctor, I just want to go back to school and like just try it. And I was like, Okay, I'm gonna get in shape first and then I'm gonna do it. Did did you feel like you had to lose weight to be a doctor because, like, if you if you considered yourself overweight, like, like no one wants an overweight doctor? Like, was that? Oh, my God. Yes, definitely. That's exactly it. It's like, how am I going to go to school for, for health and, you know, wellness and, you know, telling other people what to do if I'm sitting here in a larger body? Years after dropping out of high school, Christine is now going to nursing school. And she got all A's this past semester. Christine Capece is a nursing student in Massachusetts. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. Next up, we are going to hear about another person whose body changed pretty dramatically during the pandemic. 
And in this case, it was a change he'd been waiting to make for a very long time. The man we talked to is Oliver Radcliffe. He spoke to our producer, Renny Svernovsky. How do you walk now? How has that changed? I kind of stride as much as a five foot three <laughs> dude can, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, I am, I'm always going to be short. I'm always going to be a little chap. Um, but I just, I have a little bit more of a swagger than I used to. That's Oliver Radcliffe. He's a writer who lives in Connecticut with his four children. He's 51 years old, and he came out as a lesbian just over a decade ago, after having been married to a man for 10 years. Then in 2017, he started transitioning. First socially, he told all of his friends that he was a trans man. And then medically, he got top surgery, a gender-affirming surgery where breast tissue gets removed. But for years, there was a step he just kept putting off, a step he actually wasn't sure he'd ever take. I still hadn't gone on testosterone. That's testosterone-based HRT, or hormone replacement therapy. It's something a lot of trans men will go on if they want to transition, because taking testosterone can cause a lot of masculinizing changes. They seemed like very complex changes, and they seemed like changes that I wasn't going to have much control over. When you have top surgery, you kind of have control over that because you know what the outcome is going to be. And the same when you choose your name and you change your gender markers, there's kind of an element of control there. But when you go on testosterone... You know what changes are likely to happen, but they're different with each person and they're paced differently. And it's kind of a lot to manage with also managing, you know, the public's perception of you while you're going through those changes and your friend's reaction, your family's reaction, your own reaction to how they're going to be. So I had kind of been putting it off because there was just so much unpredictability and fear and a lot of kind of leftover kind of internalized misogyny and all of this kind of stuff sort of floating around. Then came the early pandemic lockdowns. And this opportunity to go through what Oliver told me felt like a second puberty in private. He would be surrounded only by people he knew loved and supported him. The first year and a half on testosterone is when all of the changes happen. Oliver knew to expect a rash of adult acne and maybe some hair loss on his head, hair gain in other places. He knew that the way the fat sat on his body would probably change and that he might finally get to see the muscles he'd worked out for years just be visible without having to flex really hard. And he knew his voice would change. That was one of the reasons that I always got misgendered because when you have Mm -hmm. a very high voice, you know, obviously you're going to get continually read as female, however masculine you present. There was a period where all I could do was squeak. I mean, you know, you, 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 know, you, you know what a teenage boy goes through when his voice breaks. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I had no range and I, and I found myself kind of unable to kind of express emotion through my voice because my voice just ceased to have range for a while while I was trying to sort of readjust to the new tone, um, which was kind of unusual. I completely lost the ability to sing, which was hilarious because I kind of tend to sing along around the, around the house. And now it's like, my kids are like, <laughs> oh my God. I mean, my range used to be Amy Winehouse and now my range is Bob Dylan. So there's like, that was a whole kind of area to renegotiate, particularly in the kitchen uh-huh. with the kids. And, and my kids were like, OK, you're just going to have to stop singing for a while. And, and the increase in muscle, you know, was apparent quite quickly. That was really exciting. I mean, I 
grew out of all my T-shirts and shirts within the first year, put on quite a lot of bulk. And the redistribution of body fat was really the last thing to happen. So I've got a man belly, which again is, you know, it's really fun. It feels, it feels really great to put this weight back on again, having been kind of slightly obsessed about my weight all my life, which I know is another thing that... You know, trans people, before they transition, a lot of trans people have eating disorders and it's partly because, you know, they're really trying to align their body with their gender identity in a way that's really hard to do if you're not, you know, on the correct hormones. Um, so when it starts happening naturally and your body starts reshaping, it's it's kind of exciting to be able to bulk up your body again, to feel happy about putting on weight and putting on mass and putting on muscle. And for this to be something that kind of gives you euphoria rather than dysphoria, it's really, um, it's really an exciting feeling. Can you tell me like how you thought about your body before all of this, before these changes, and then how you feel about it now? It's it's a really complicated one to try and explain because sure. I understand on an objective level that before I transitioned, my body looked good. And I didn't look at myself in the mirror and say, I hate my body or I look ugly. It just was the wrong body. It wasn't mm-hmm. my body. And although objectively in the mirror, it looked fine, living inside it, living in it was incredibly hard. And... I thought to start with, I hoped that by changing my gender markers and my name and my pronouns and having top surgery, that I would get rid of that dysphoria. And for a lot of people, that is the case because, of course, you know, it's a spectrum and people Mm -hmm. sort of find their comfort wherever they land. And I was doing it slowly so that I could sort of find the sweet spot where I felt good. But Mm -hmm. when I got into this non-binary space... It just, it didn't feel complete. It didn't get rid of that sense of discomfort. I knew there was further that I needed to go. And I'd spoken to trans men before who had talked to me about how they felt when they started taking hormones and how transformative it is. And I sort of understood what they were saying, but you don't really get it until you do it. And then when you do it, people talk about the experience of gender euphoria and that is really what it feels like it feels euphoric it is it is really exciting and you know I started this process a long time ago and I still to this day I get up in the morning and I and I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like oh my god I love and I'm I'm a 50 year old dude right I'm five foot three I'm receding hairline I am by no means one of those perfect Instagram trans men but I just freaking love my body now because it feels so real and so good and so aligned with who I am. So for, you know, for a lot of people, the last two years have been fraught and complicated for a lot of reasons. But I guess I also wonder if, you know, for for a lot of people, there's also been things to be grateful for. And yeah, I wonder if you are, you feel grateful for the last two years and the ability to sort of go through this privately and emerge the way that you have. Yeah, I really do. I really do. And, you know, I I, I hesitate to talk about that too much with my friends just because, you know, I know how hard it's been for some people and I have, you know, very close members of my chosen family who've lost very close members of their families and it's been incredibly hard for them. 
But, I, you know, I am. I'm grateful for that time with my kids. I was on lockdown with all four of my kids, and they're teenagers. They kind of don't want to spend that much time with me anymore. <laughs> um, so having that forced time with my teenagers may not have been great for them, but mm-hmm. it was kind of awesome for me. You know, and absolutely to be, have been able to go through this experience in private without having to deal with other people's perceptions or expectations or reactions because, you know, we trans people are highly sensitized to how we are read by other people. There is so much fear around us and our bodies and how we're perceived and how we move in the world and how we exist in the world and there is so much explaining we have to do and eggshells we have to walk around that to be able to take all of that off the table while I was going through the physical changes was really a huge relief. It was a it was a luxury, I think. Oliver Radcliffe is a writer based in Connecticut. This story was produced by Rennie Svernovsky. What I loved hearing about Oliver's story was his gratitude and how it feels to just be so thankful for your body. That's what came up with the next person we're hearing from, Jim Kolovis. He is 47 years old, a dad to two kids, and he will tell you he is extremely grateful for his body. The rush you get every time you score a goal is is great. I played in uh, just recreational leagues. Uh, where the games are late at night, where you get no sleep and have to work the next day. (laughs) Jim loves hockey. He's from Pittsburgh, so big hockey town. And he's always had the body for it. 220 pounds, 6'3". So I was more of a a taller guy playing. So with that, gave me a great reach with my stick to, uh, you know, poke check the puck off of other people. Uh, and kind of used the taller frame to my advantage. But that body that could zoom around on the ice, that feels like a long time ago. For some reason, coronavirus did not (laughs) agree with me and really, really destroyed my lungs very quickly. Jim got COVID in February of 2021 right before he was eligible to get vaccinated. And his case was really bad. He was hospitalized, then he was put on a ventilator, then he was put on ECMO, a machine that pumps oxygen into your blood outside your body. It's basically life support. And Jim ended up being on ECMO for six months. That is a very, very long time. By the end, he had to come to grips with the fact that his body was no longer working. His lungs were basically useless. And I remember one of the doctors, I asked him, what are the chances of my uh, lungs recovering? And he, he just showed me with his two fingers, very, very small, like 5% chance. And I said, lung transplant it is. <laughs> Except initially the doctors told him he was actually too weak to get a lung transplant. They thought that he just couldn't handle the surgery. And that was quite the letdown, as you could imagine. Um, 
And boy, at that time, my mind was really wondering what in the world is going to happen with me. Um, and that's when I started to have, like, I'm a really, really happy guy um, throughout my whole life. You know, I, I got best smile in high school because I smiled all the time. My wife calls me Guy Smiley. She says it's kind of disturbing that I smile <laughs> a ton. But hey, I, whatever, that's, that's who I am. Um, but I'll say after I got denied the transplant, I had some really, really down and dark days. And in that moment when Jim was losing faith in his own body, someone else started to believe in it. A surgeon in Chicago heard about his case and said, well, 46-year-old guy, athletic, never smoked, no issues before COVID. If he could just get a little stronger, maybe we could take on his case. And that's what happened. Jim was moved to Northwestern Memorial Hospital. By the end of September last year, he was put on the transplant list. They got the call a few days later, and then Jim was waking up with a whole new set of lungs. It just felt so, so, just so amazing how just to breathe clearly again and um, being able to take deep breaths in and out, not having that, that shortness of breath feeling at all. It was completely different from, from the past eight months. And it was just like the best feeling in the world. Now, Jim is still trying to reckon with his body. Not just how it feels, but how it has physically changed. What it is, what it isn't, what it's become. The first time he really looked at himself in the mirror after the transplant, he was like a different person. His arms and his wrists were so skinny. He had a bunch of gnarly scars on his chest and his neck and his face. Yeah, they're definitely battle scars, to say the least. Jim also had trouble moving his arms and hands because of nerve damage. When I talked to him, he had to use voice commands to operate his phone. He could only walk three or four minutes before getting fatigued. There was a lot of recovery ahead of him. And at the same time, Jim's body is kind of a miracle. What about your lungs? Um, you know, I, I, you mentioned the profound gratitude that you have thinking about, you know, what, what made it possible for you to have those lungs. But do you think about the lungs themselves? Like, do you think about, like, wow, I have a new body part that's just here inside of me all the time? You know, just the other night, I was FaceTiming with uh, one of my friends, and he's like, dude, you have someone else with lungs in your body. <laughs> like, yeah, man. It is, is, it, it is uh, something to think about, but... Again, I'm just so thankful for those lungs. But <laughs> it's a little wild, for sure. So how do you think your relationship with your body has changed through this experience? I'm so appreciative of, of how, your, how your body um, can change so quickly so fast. I'm, I'm just, um, the re relationship with my body is, I feel like I have to 
take care of it much more than I ever thought I needed to before, prior to COVID. I feel like I'm so lucky to be here and I'm not going to screw this up. Jim Kolovis is from Pittsburgh. We first talked to him earlier this year, and at that time, he was still living in Chicago so his doctors could monitor his recovery. When we checked back in this month, we heard some good news. He is heading home for the first time since getting COVID more than a year and a half ago. He says his new lungs are feeling great, and he's even walking long distances. This story was produced by me and Ariel Plotnick. So you might be listening to this and thinking, God, after hearing all of that, I wish I were feeling better or more grateful for my body. Well, after the break, we're going to get some advice on how we can all come to terms with the changes in our post-pandemic bodies and recognize that it's not too late to get things on the right track. We'll be right back. Yet your first reaction, my first reaction is, I don't want to hear your your story of thriving because that, that bar is just way too high for me. This is Tara Parker Pope. She is the editor of the new well-being section at The Post. But I think we should listen to these stories and we should find them aspirational because it is not too late for any of us because the fact is is that we are still in this moment of a massive transition and change in our society. In her reporting and her editing, Tara has been thinking a lot about this change in our relationship with our bodies. And she has some theories about why. So you have some people who had the best pandemic ever. They they fulfilled some personal goal. They solved a problem. They had less stress. Despite all the sort of sadness and tragedy around them, they found a way to thrive. And then I think there's another group of people who really, truly suffered. Of course, there's people who had personal loss. I'm one of them. My stepmother died of COVID and my father developed long COVID. Oh, I'm so sorry. And there's a lot of us out there. Um, but in addition to that tragic loss of life, there are people who, who had trouble sleeping, who maybe started drinking more, who's had more mental health problems. There's a range of, of things, more, more problems with their feet. <laughs> and then there's a group of people in the middle who maybe they had a little bit of each experience. So there's no one, one story of the pandemic. There's many. But it, it definitely had an effect on our bodies and our minds. So let's talk about maybe that first category of, of people who found a way to thrive even through difficult circumstances. Can you talk a little bit about some of the experiences that you've heard from that bucket and, and also about why, like why people or at least some people were able to use these last couple years as an opportunity to change their relationship with their body or frankly change their body? I think for a lot of people, uh, real life can feel like a treadmill. And the pandemic allowed them to hit pause and to step off for a little bit. 
And in those moments, they were able to recalibrate, reassess, and think, what are my priorities? And what's interesting is that I've heard stories of people who maybe were, they had an unhealthy relationship with exercise. They were a little bit obsessed with it, and they were going to the gym. And then by hitting the pause button, they started taking more walks, or they focused on maybe a strength training at home, and they found they really enjoyed it. Or maybe they got a Peloton or, a, you know, a, a bike or something and found a new way, a new relationship with fitness. Um, in terms of food, a lot of us, you know, kind of rediscovered cooking. We stopped ordering takeout. Now, some people started baking up a storm, which is super fun and might have gained a few pounds, but who cares? <laughs> and then, uh, you know, a lot of people might have just had more time with families, more time with breakfast with their kids, and then they kind of had a healthier time or... Um, I know personally, when I stopped socializing, I stopped drinking alcohol. It just, it's something I only did um, with friends and other people, you know, had a different experience. But I think that being able to hit pause allowed us, many people, to think about the things that were working in our lives and the things that were not working. So Tara, let's also talk about the flip side, the way that people have struggled. And I think that there are a lot of very serious ways in which People have had those experiences. But you also mentioned feet. And so before we before we get to that, I want to talk about the feet stuff because <laughs> I was really surprised to hear you say that that people's feet have gotten worse during the pandemic. Well, it depends on who you talk to. But there are some doctors who are saying that they're seeing a lot more uh, physical problems with feet. And uh, it may be that People's routines changed. They stopped driving and they started walking more. Or instead of going to the gym, they started walking and they developed some foot-related problems. Uh, depending on who you talk to, they might say that a lot of people, because they stopped wearing supportive shoes, they started getting uh, problems walking barefoot at home. But then there's a group of people who would say, you know, my feet have never felt better because I'm not wearing heels anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, there's always two stories. But I have talked to some uh, orthopedic doctors who say they're seeing uh, a new uh, range of foot problems that they would tie to changes in lifestyle during the pandemic, either walking more or not using shoes, walking barefoot, you know, and, and foot problems have developed as a result. So uh, dentists would tell you the same thing. They're seeing more fractured teeth and, and worse dental care and more cavities. So our bodies definitely, the pause that maybe gave our minds a break Sometimes that pause isn't so good for your body because we didn't do some of the self-care that we would have done uh, if things had been normal. And for people who have had experiences from the last couple of years that are not just like, oh, I did a habit that I didn't want to do as much. I gained a little weight and started drinking more, whatever, but who had pretty serious issues, who had COVID or are now um, living with long COVID, or who struggled with eating disorders, who have something that is really serious that they are still trying to get their hands around and, and frankly trying to survive. What would your advice be to them right now? I think your question is really important because there are, are some people who have serious mental health issues, serious physical challenges that have either happened because of the pandemic or been made worse by the pandemic. And I think that when we're talking about these small changes, we're really not talking about that group of people because they need support from the people who love them. They need 
um, friendships and social social connections, but they also need help from mental health professionals, from doctors. I'll tell you, my father developed long COVID during the pandemic, and I moved in with him for several months to help him and help him get off oxygen and help him, you know, recover and get to his physical therapy. And I think as a society, as a, as a culture, as a as as human beings, and you know, our government, we need to think about. There, there's a whole new generation of people who now have chronic illness because of the pandemic. And I think the conversation going forward has to be how to support those people. You know, there was a time when disability and chronic illness was something, you know, we sort of talked about as something that happened to other people. We, we have to stop othering it. Um, mm-hmm. Disability and chronic illness is all of us. It's happened either to us or to people we love. And it's a, now a shared experience and we're, that we're more aware of. I think it's always been, but we're more aware of it now. So let's build on that. I mean, let's use the bad things that happened during this pandemic to change policy, to change the way we take care of each other. So I would say in your own small world, um, think about your friends that that have long COVID or who have other health problems like migraines or chronic illness or rheumatoid arthritis and just, you know, offer that support. And if you're among those people, ask for the help. So, yeah, it's not just, oh, small steps will make you better. I think I do think as a as a country and as a world we now are facing and we have to start dealing with this problem of chronic illness and disability. Tara, thank you so much for this conversation. It was really lovely. Thanks for having me. Tara Parker-Pope is the editor of the new well-being section at The Post. The story was produced by Maggie Penman. Before we go, we've got one more thing from our sound engineer, Sean Carter, about how he decided to change his look during the pandemic. I wanted to grow out a Jimi Hendrix 1970s afro that just wreaked freedom. So before the pandemic, I was living in Bangkok, Thailand, and my hair was always short. It was like the one on top, and my barber, Jack, from Never Say Cuts, always hooked me up with the clean fade going down the sides, clean bald fade going down, and it was just a shortcut, normal shortcut, applicable to any situation, scenario, very versatile, but also very boring. Before lockdowns and remote work, Sean never really considered growing his hair out. That's in part because it never felt like the right time to start the process. And he worried that people would think it didn't look neat or professional. When you grow your hair out, at least for me, there's like a three-month period where it looks absolutely insane. Those three months are really hard to do if you're working in a professional setting. And it always struck me as funny because the way I look or the way you look, anyone looks, doesn't uh, hinder your ability to, to work. As an audio engineer... It's like, the way my hair looks does not impact the way I hear things. So people have always told me, like, oh, you have an afro, looks sloppy, looks like you don't take care of yourself, looks like you're lazy. All these negative connotations for something that actually takes so much work. Anyone who has an afro knows how much work this thing takes to keep it looking good and and fresh and fly. And then the summer of 2020 happened. I was in Bangkok, Thailand. I was, I was far away. I'm reading and watching about what's happening with George Floyd and the protests, and I felt so detached. I, I felt like I had no way to help or be a part of this movement that's so integral 
to African-Americans and, and African-American history. And I just felt so, I just felt proud in a, in a, in a way. Like I, I felt proud of what African-Americans have overcome and what we've done to, to survive in the circumstances that we've been put in um, time and time again throughout all these years. So I was proud to grow my Afro out and proud to grow my hair out. And due to the lockdown, I had that three months to get through that weird grow out phase with your hair. And then after the three months, it was just luscious, beautiful hair. I felt way more confident. And in part, that's because people were coming up to me saying like, hey, your hair looks great. I don't, I've never, I never get that. With short hair, it's just like, oh, this is a regular fade, whatever. But people were coming up to me like, your hair looks really good. Keep keep rocking with that. I was like, wow, this has never happened to me before. And it's such a pick-me-up. I walk different. I talk different. I just was having more enjoyment and trying on different outfits because things worked. Yeah, people just treated me differently. And I just felt way more in my skin. And my wife loved it. She supports it. She's always supporting me. And she's like, we're getting married in like two months. I love you, but we can't be in these wedding photos with your hair like that. I cut my hair uh, right before the wedding, and it was the most one of the saddest days of my life. The hair was falling off my head, and like as a sound designer, I could just I just heard piano notes ding, every time a piece of hair hit the ground. It was like a piano note, ding, and I was like, man, it's it's over. I don't know if I would grow my hair back out. I really do want to grow my hair back out again. I don't know if I would go all the way as full afro as I did before. I think there's like a good middle ground where I can grow it out and still looks quote unquote professional and easier to maintain than having a, an afro, which is a lot of, I mean, people who have long hair, it's a lot of work. And I don't really have time to maintain hair right now like that. So I think a good middle ground would be like maybe keeping it high up top and then just like fade down, you know, on the sides. I found a new barber. He's he's been giving me some good advice. So we're we're, we're going to work on something. It's a new project. This story was produced by Sean Carter. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. And I just want to give a shout out to the listeners who responded to our call out for stories about their bodies. Thank you especially to Oliver Radcliffe, John Landergan, and Sophia Prisbilo for the recordings you heard at the beginning of this episode. Today's show was edited by our executive producer, Maggie Penman, and our supervising senior producer, Rena Flores, with help from Renny Svernovsky. It was mixed by Sean Carter. Post Reports is also produced by Eliza Dennis, Charlotte Freeland, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Arjun Singh, and Jordan Marie Smith. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are our assistant producers. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. The Post Director of Audio is Renita Jablonski. Our intern is Natalie Bettendorf. Today is her last day on our team. Natalie, it has been so wonderful to get to work with you. You have done such fabulous work, and we are so excited to watch you shine in the audio world. Finally, Post Reports is now co-hosted by Elahe Azadi and me, Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.